and welcome to Got the Runs, the comics podcast with all the sexual chemistry of, um, I guess, a town robber, would you call them? <laughs> a heister. A heister and his hostage. I was going to go with uh, a safe cracker and his beloved drill. Sure. I... So did he pour gunpowder into the no, safe? No, he poured he poured nitroglycerin into the safe. Sure. Remember the guy from uh from Atlantis Lost <laughs> Vinny, you're of course referring to? Nitroglycerin. <laughs> yeah, well, we remember Vinny on Got the Runs, yes. <laughs> Mole. <laughs> you have disturbed the dirt. Remember how Mole's using his bunk to keep dirt samples? Uh, Atlantis like kind Mole, of a heist movie. I guess so. Yeah, especially once they all reveal that like actually we're bad. There's like a little there's, not, a, there's a heistish segment there. I guess so. That's more of an adventure movie. Certainly. Yeah, but it's I think it's that they all have like their specialized roles, and then right, when it's yeah. revealed that it's like and we use them for nefarious purposes. Sure, that it starts to get a bit of a heist feel. Sure. I will say, I rewatched that a few years ago. Mm-hmm. It's really bad. It's I rewatched so it maybe six months ago uh, <laughs> for reasons Uh-oh. that I, you might recall. I texted you <laughs> because I was mm-hmm. trying to remember. And listeners, if you know the answer oh, to this riddle, I know please weigh in. I have a visceral memory of an animated feature film or possibly television show in which there's a photograph of two people shaking hands and one of them is like a dignified looking gentleman and the other one has like a crazy toothless grin and is like clearly pumping too hard and is pointing at the other person in the photograph it's clearly atlantis (laughs) but it's not i rewatched all of atlantis looking for this picture and it's not there but I really thought it was Atlantis. It's definitely like the kind of visual gag that is in Atlantis for sure. Yeah, it's, it's clearly in the scene where he's being introduced to the old guy and he's like, I know your grandfather, Milo. I'm, s- I'm sorry to tell you that they're both very distinguished looking in that photo. Uh, other than I, th- I think there's something like crazy happening in the background or like one of them is wearing a bathrobe or something like that. But That's anyways, crazy. Um, Mike Mignola famously did the like design uh art design on that movie mm. so he designed I mean, like all the atlantean um you know creatures and uh, and all the yeah. technology and all that stuff it's gotten like his sort cool. of yeah, that stuff is cool and it does have his sort of signature kind of like blockish you know kirby derived sure. aesthetic sure um yeah i think the main problem with the movie would be the 60 minutes in the middle where <laughs> nothing happens uh vinnie says nitroglycerin i got dynamite Famously, he has dynamite. He tricks Milo with something to do with cherry bombs. A couple of cherry bombs. Finney's a good character. They're all good characters. Um, no no notes from me. Good movie. Uh, sure. But we are, of course, not here to talk about Atlantis, colon, The Lost Empire, or its direct-to-video sequels. We are here to talk about Darwin Cook's Richard Stark's Parker, <laughs> The Score, and Slayground. Slayground. <laughs> that was almost a bone saw cadence. Slayground. Three minutes of Slayground. You, of course, held up the wrong three fingers. He dementedly goes middle <laughs> finger, ring finger, pinky. <laughs> As if he's a German ordering drinks. Uh, yeah, precisely. 
Um, there's also a great like behind the scenes featurette with the Macho Man Randy Savage, where he basically is like, "I've never really been in a movie before, but uh, they got me playing a wrestler. Uh, I guess that makes me a pretty good actor." <laughs> <laughs> And he was. And he was. I can't say he didn't didn't live up to his role. And of course, there is a wrestler in these books. So this is relevant. Did you catch this? Uh, It's it's mentioned pretty offhand in these adaptations. I don't think so. Uh, Of course, in the score, Dan Vicha, one of the uh, heisters, Hmm. is mentioned to occasionally do pro wrestling uh, as his like day job. In the books, he's like very obsessed with like fitness and eating well, and his whole shtick is that like he he's like semi suicidal insofar as like he refuses to be arrested and would rather be like shot dead by police because he knows that if he goes to prison where he will be unable to exercise and eat healthy and take his vitamins, then he will die a slow and painful death of the spirit. So he's determined to instead go out in a blaze of glory if it should uh, should come to that. Right. He certainly has a very, like, 60s pro wrestler aesthetic, like, Mm -hmm. of European extraction. Yes. Like, hairy chest and mustache. Mm -hmm. Yep. (laughs) There's quite a few. There's there's some real mustache work happening uh, in the score in particular that we will will get to. I mean, do we want to just dive in? I'm thinking that uh, considering how much Parker stuff we talked about in the last episode, we'll probably take a closer look at the material itself here. Yeah, um, it's it's crazy that we are once again almost uh, to the end of a miniseries, and this one is like doubly sad because it's like, oh, yeah, it why. ends because he died abruptly. It's very sad, actually, and and we're like getting to the point of it where it's like we're talking about like, and he planned to do this, but then wasn't able to because of his untimely death. Right, because he like, I mean, these ones are so much more episodic. And like individual than the first two. Yeah, I I actually prefer these two quite a bit. I don't know what your feeling is, but especially like the opening of the score. I'm like, this is the Parker that people like rant and rave about uh, and do like big augas for. It's like when he is so much more so in this again, like this kind of procedural thing. And like, not that the opening of this is so different from the opening of uh, the Hunter insofar as like it's a fairly long silent sequence just kind of like showing parker at work but whereas the hunter is kind of laying out a fairly it's like it's like all in a day's work for parker the score i I frequently mix up the outfit and the score so apologies if i do that but the score is opening basically is about him like he realizes he's being followed and then kills the guy and it's almost more so like a like suspense uh like thriller type of uh, type of scene yeah it's a very like i mean Again, we talk all the time about comics, like, feeling cinematic, or, like, this could be a movie, but, like, these ones especially, I'm like, why aren't they just churning well, up the yeah. of this? Slayground, I think, I mean, we'll talk about Slayground more when we get to it, but I was kind of, like, thinking about it afterwards, and I was like, it is kind of the perfect one to do visually, because, like, three quarters of the book is, like, Parker alone in an abandoned park, and it's literally just, like, him, like, setting traps and, like watching like spying on people and like rooting through places and it's like it lends itself so well to the visual storytelling because it's like well instead of like having all this dialogue and things like that we're just gonna like watch him go from place to place and lay all his traps and then even when like other people get involved they're not like hey parker what's going on they're like let's get that guy and then you like watch him spring all the traps so it is very like kinetic and like action-based for slayground especially but 
the score to a certain extent as well. Yeah, I mean, they're both, like, very much in the wheelhouse of, like, a certain type of movie, which I think also makes them feel like they would lend themselves well to movies. Uh, There's one thing that we didn't talk about last week that I was alerted to by a distinguished friend of the podcast, Emilio Diaz, Mm. which is that... My uh, favorite ED. Carry on. (laughs) Great. Okay. Shout out, Emilio. (laughs) Which was that in March of this year, it was announced that... Amazon would be producing uh, a, I'll quote here from another good friend of mine, J. Kim Murphy, uh, a series of movie and television projects adapted from Donald E. Westlake's Parker, and there is a pair that are the team behind it. It's an actor and a writer-director. Do you want to try and... Is Is the actor playing Parker? I would assume so, yes. I, I was actually thinking about this because, like, he is such a, like, it seems like Hollywood mystery box. We can maybe talk about this later. I was thinking about, like, who would you cast as Parker today? Mm-hmm. But, like, and, and I assume that the actor is coming to it with, like, some some passion for it? Or they're they're just, like, they've been I, cast and... I guess so. When, when you hear it, you will be like, that makes perfect sense. The person I was thinking of when I was brainstorming was Adam Driver. I like. I really like that. It it is someone. It's more in the Tom Cruise as Jack okay, Reacher vein. <laughs> someone a little bit older, uh, but with a history of like action and things like that. Yes, and you'll, <laughs> okay. you'll under, these these two the this actor and this director are very like oh closely associated together, like yes. partnership. Hmm. Yeah. So the director is it a Soderbergh joint? Mm. Mm. It's a good guess, but no. See, like George Soderbergh, Koenig, Soderbergh Driver, the, the existing connection, that would be awesome. I just think Driver has, like, the the physicality for the role that is, yeah. like, right? Although it would be weird to hear him talk and be like, and of course that's Parker. <laughs> <laughs> and, like, you know, the sort of the quiet Yeah, like, he can, like, energy. he can do the silent, like, the strong silent thing for sure. Um, I feel I feel like I'm uh, looking for a needle in a haystack here, so why don't okay, you I'll just... Go, I'll, uh, I'll give you a little... This is a, a, a huge star... Oh, this okay, but but like, older than Driver, like of Cruise's yes, generation, of Cruise's generation, and maybe he's a little younger than Cruise. Okay, and like you, when you, you you when you hear their name, you're not like that's a huge star necessarily, but then you'll you'll understand what I mean. <laughs> okay, <laughs> certainly a very bankable star. I'll say that. Okay, interesting. <laughs> Um, and I'm getting the sense that like not a traditionally action person, but they have done action. Well, it's kind of hard. Okay, why don't you? <laughs> okay, so why don't you end the, this farce? The team is writer director Shane Black and Robert okay. Downey Jr. Oh, okay. <laughs> oh, you don't like it? I don't like it. I, I mean. Boy, I don't, I don't like it. <laughs> I have to say, even like, I mean, I'm sure Shane Black probably is like crazy about Donald Westlake. If you told me that it was Shane Black and Rich, um, Robert Downey Ryan Jr. Gosling? doing Dortmunder, I would be thrilled. Uh, Dortmunder being Donald E. Westlake's other famous character, who he 
created because he was writing a Parker book and it kept turning into a farce. And so he was like, sure. I can't put Parker in this. So I'm going to make the like anti Parker who is like a <laughs> goofy, like, yeah, who, who's like always messing things up. It's called the hot rock, which I think actually also has been adapted into a movie. So, yeah. And it's about like, he keeps stealing this diamond and then losing it and having to plan another heist to steal it again. Um, which you can imagine like, uh, being sort of a Parker-esque story, but then the farcical element of him like continually losing it and having to re-steal it is what made Westlake be like, this is a little too funny <laughs> to yeah. be a Parker and book. Do you know who plays Dortmunder in The Hot Rock? Um, I don't. It's great casting. Robert Redford. <laughs> oh, I actually have uh, have read that previously. Um, see, again, like a weird, weird amount of like Westlake stuff coming to life. But that's not the only Dortmunder movie, crazily. I believe I referenced Jimmy the Kid, which is primarily known as a Gary Coleman joint. But that is like a Dortmunder story. And the second lead is like playing Dortmunder. <laughs> sure. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> Parker... Shane Black, Robert Downey Jr. <laughs> yeah, see, Shane Black, like, that's that's that interesting. I mean, but, it makes sense, but, like, even then, like, it again, I think he would be perfect for Dortmunder, where it's, like, you know, I, I think dialogue. he's just, like, a little bit flashier, snappier, stylish in a way that suits itself to, like, a crime comedy as opposed to the Parker stuff, which is so, like, comedy-free for the most part. Yeah, and, well, you know, I mean, you could say the same thing about Soderbergh as well, though. Yeah, I guess so. Yeah, that's true. I guess it will be interesting to see how they play, especially that it's a series of movies and television projects. Yeah, and I, the first I, project, I just am not sure about this. The first project is Play Dirty. I'm not sure if you're familiar with the work. It's a It's a Parker joint? It must be one of the new ones. Yeah, it's, it says he stars as Parker, a professional thief with a brutal mercenary work ethic. So, you know. True. Seems like Fair. they have the, have the sense. Uh-huh. Uh, but yeah, I mean, I guess we'll see. But like the connection is like kiss, kiss, bang, bang, right? But that's more of yes. like a quip. Yes, a quip again. based. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's interesting. I don't know. I don't like just just knowing, I guess, like thinking of like Robert Downey Jr.'s like Sherlock or <laughs> dare I invoke Dr. Doolittle. Sure. I, Please just Doolittle. <laughs> sorry. Drop right, the just, doctor. Just, it's, cleaner. it's cleaner. Yeah. Um, I am skeptical of that casting and of, it's just like, it's the kind of project where I don't really want an actor on it who has like the clout and star power to make it like a Robert Downey Jr. joint. Vehicle. Yeah. yeah. Like, it doesn't lend itself well to movie stars as material, I would say, unless they are, like, really excited about, like, you know, again, if they're like, I really wanted to take on a role that would, like, challenge me with the physicality and, like, have to convey a lot without saying a lot, which is not uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s known quality, at least in the past, like, 20 years. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, like, it is like a weirdly like compelling role, I feel like. Yeah. Even though it's like, it seems like a bit of like a strong silent type. Like, Well, it's yeah, so but much... it's like when you make the like the strong silent type the main character in that way, like it's kind of, again, thinking of like characters who fit into sort of like the the Parker archetype. I was thinking it's like, it's sort of, yeah, the Parker <laughs> Very good. Um <laughs> It, it's like almost like a Mad Max type role where it's like, mm. yeah, you don't like necessarily 
you're not clamoring to play the guy who like barely speaks in huge stretches of the movie, but there is like a certain appeal to a certain kind of actor. Not that like I don't think necessarily Tom Hardy would be a great Parker, for example, and really? Mel Gibson. Well, I guess he. Could. I was just like, <laughs> man, if you really hit upon it, like, um, and I mean, Mel Gibson famously played a version of Parker that everyone who likes Parker seems to think was bad. But but a similar thing where it's like I do think a lot of actors in Hollywood would, if they got the opportunity to play Mad Max, would be like pretty excited about that. Sure, yeah, and I mean, I I will say I don't think that Mel Gibson was playing Parker. <laughs> right. It seems, it does seem to be a, a loose take on the character to be sure. What if Jeff Danson played part? part Wait, not <laughs> do you, uh, do you have a pitch for Ted like Danson, a rather? Oh, Ted Danson as Parker. I can honestly <laughs> like a younger Ted Danson. I can kind of see it. The funny thing is like, I do feel like cook has kind of infected me where he draws him very handsomely um, and I mean, yeah. like Westlake does cite Jack Palance again as like kind of his visual model, which far be it from me to suggest that Jack Palance is a not handsome man, <laughs> but oh, man. he is drawn like very handsome in these books. Whereas I feel like the description of him in which he is frequently described as having like dry dead hair that looks like a toupee about to blow off in the wind. Sure. Um, I mean... Yeah, I, I we're gonna Hollywood it up. Yeah, I wouldn't necessarily have like considered him uh, a conventionally handsome man, but do you have a, a suggestion for your your uh, Parker dream casting? I mean, I just I was literally just googling tall actors, mm-hmm. and I think I really hit upon it here. I mean, this is like I think this is the right intersection of the star power to get people out to the theater, but can also play the role really well. Right, is this going to be Gwendolyn Christie? <laughs> <laughs> what? I just, you have the look on your face that is like, this is going to make David laugh when I say it. I mean, like, I feel like almost anyone I say make, <laughs> would make you laugh when you say it. What if, like, LeBron James played Parker? Oh, that would be good. Now, okay. That was this, not my suggestion to be this does bring clear. up something. Now, I will also say, I don't think Parker is supposed to be, like, toweringly Huge. tall. Yeah, yeah. Okay. But that does bring up an interesting thing, which is that one of the actors famously who has played uh, Parker is Jim Brown. And mm-hmm. Westlake has frequently said that, especially, like, when it first got started, most of his fan mail was either from inmates or, like, black urban young men who were, like, I identify with Parker because I too see myself as being like removed from society and like having to find ways to like basically like make my own way and make my own fortune. And like the, the standard um, kind of society around me refuses to like help me and support me. So I have to kind of like get by on the strength of my own kind of cunning and, uh, and hard work and, uh, and quality of work. So he is a, a character who historically has been very appealing uh, to a black audience, apparently. So, you I mean, know, I think casting him as a black man, like, is interesting. I don't know that it totally, like, works as far as the material. Like, I do think that Parker would run into a lot more problems as he kind of, like, goes about his business in the 60s as a black man. But for, like, a but I mean, modern... Like, you can, I don't think you really need to, like... Like, you can just make a movie, you know? Like... That doesn't have to be part of that. <laughs> That's true. That's true. And I do also think like one of the interesting things about Parker as a character is that he like frequently sort of shifts himself into another environment and people like 
frequently will kind of note him because, again, like his physical presence. But he is also kind of like pegged as someone who can go from like lounging on the beach and people are like, ah, yes, like a a resort dweller. We know like our good friend, Mr. Willis, his his civilian name to then being like, oh, I'm like the the like coffee delivery boy from the coffee shop downstairs and people don't like second guess that. Or he can be like, Oh, I'm the mechanic here working on this and people don't second guess it. Or like he, he, he frequently just sort of like puts himself into these roles and people sort of like take it at face value. And Parker (laughs) does seem to have like this same sort of like the gruffness that he can kind of tone down for when he needs to sort of pass in a more like high society type of environment he does have this like kind of inherent like uh, yeah something something about him that allows people to accept him as both like a low status and high status figure that i think like putting a black actor in that role would be really interesting i've i've got the guy i've got the <laughs> okay, guy okay lay it on me low status high status uh-huh bankable star uh-huh Ben Affleck. <laughs> I don't I totally hate that. I feel like that's like that's it. He'd be so good. Oh man! If if you've heard that Ben Affleck and Shane Black were partnering on a Parker movie, <laughs> okay, actually, you would be that's so excited. Pretty good. I I do yeah I I do think he has like a little bit more range in that regard than he maybe like typically gets credit for. I think of and course of his groundbreaking. We know he can pick up coffee, certainly. I think of his uh, often silent performance in The Accountant. <laughs> I was thinking of The Accountant as well. <laughs> it's uh, so good. It is so good. Yeah. I, so, again, I'm, I'm always kind of interested to hear about, like, who in sort of Hollywood and the broader entertainment industry cites Parker and Westlake as an influence. I am surprised that Robert Downey Jr. is interested in it. I don't know. We'll see. Maybe it'll be great. I would love to be proven wrong. Sure. And I'm going to keep scrolling through this list and I'll occasionally throughout this podcast pepper you with uh, some thoughts. What is the list that you're looking at? Tall actors? Yes. Tall male actors. Ben Affleck is what? 6'2", 6'3"? 6'3 and a half apparently. Mm. I feel like you want to avoid like what what you were saying, like the super beefy guy. Mm -hmm. But I do feel like Dave Bautista. Yeah. Is he tall? He's, yeah, he tall. strikes me as short. He is actually tall. Uh, huh. Let me see here. He because I feel like when four. maybe it's just confusing because like in Guardians he's like standing between like Drax and Rocket, so it's like ah, a normal sized guy, <laughs> <laughs> right? But yeah, I mean, if you see him in a wrestling ring, I think you pretty right. clearly his size comes across more. Mm-hmm. But let's shall we uh, dive into the score? Do let's. Um, I, I'm interested to website. hear from you. I... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Your employer currently question mark? No, come if on. If only. Um I am curious to hear from you how did you think these two compared to the first two that we did? I I really liked them. I think the one th- I mean I feel like the sort of episodicness is like a pro and a con, right? Mm-hmm. Because I feel like that lack of like a propulsive sort of narrative thread that you can sort of hook into mm-hmm. does sort of like detract from it ever like really being like I'm fully into this. Right. But then I mean like I, I love Parker. <laughs> He's so cool. <laughs> I will uh, I will also say just from like kind of a uh like behind the scenes standpoint Number one, he skipped a lot of books. There's like probably sure. six or seven books between, maybe even more than that, between the score and Slayground. 
He also did remove one of the big kind of continuing narrative threads through a lot of those books, which is Parker's Paramore Claire, who he talked a little bit in one of the interviews I read about kind of having to like redesign Slayground to take her out of it because he was like, I'm not putting Claire in these, <laughs> which I do think also accounts for Slayground being a bit leaner as a, as a volume compared to the other ones. And then the other note is that he had planned to do as a final fifth volume, Butcher's Moon, which is very much a sequel to both the score and Slayground. And so the fact that we're missing that kind of concluding volume, I think does lend itself to the episodic feel because that one really ties it together as far as like the Butcher's Moon is about him going back to retrieve the money that he leaves in the park at the end of Slayground. And then Mr. Lozini uh, giving him a hard time about it. So he calls back a lot of the guys from the score to help him kind of, you know, take on uh, organized crime in this. uh, It's set in Buffalo in these books. I don't think that's actually where it is in the original book. But anyways, to to kind of once again, take on an outfit man head on. Sure. I mean, that sounds good. But yeah, these are like, these are (laughs) really good. Like, they are just like I said, like, I would, they're, it was as if I was just like, I watched a movie and I was like, this is a great movie. And like, these are the exact kind of movies I like. Like it, it does feel very like sixties or seventies in that. It's sort of almost like low concept in some ways mm-hmm. where it's like, like the, the plot of the score is like, we're pulling a heist. A town. <laughs> it's like, we're pulling a heist, but what if like the place where we pulled the heist was weird, was like a little weird. <laughs> Yeah, it is. It is. I believe I described this one in the last one as kind of a maximalist, maximalist Parker book in that it's like three or four Parker jobs all rolled into one. And like part of the fun of it, it seems, is like how how is Parker going to like talk himself into this and like make it viable, which again, it's also like, it's so Ocean's Eleven. Yeah, it is. I was smiling to myself, like thinking of like you, you invoking Ocean's Eleven and Soderbergh in the last one and being like, I mean, the score is kind of a like proto Ocean's Eleven in some ways. I'm actually, I wonder if it predates the original. I believe it does not because the original is 1960. So I would, yeah, then it definitely doesn't. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised as well if, if Ocean's Eleven is in that case, like a bit of an inspiration for the score, because that does seem like the kind of thing that, uh, that would appeal to Westlake that he would be like, what if I tried to do Ocean's Eleven, but also Parker is there? Right. Or yeah, just like, I feel like his sort of like whole thing is like, he just gets like all you, cause like, I feel like all he really needs is like one idea. Mm -hmm. And then it's like, well, I can just string this into a book. This is easy. (laughs) Yes. He is um, like very much like, like we'll talk about it maybe a bit more with Slateground, but I think we talked about like the formula of the Parker books last time uh, and the fact that his whole kind of approach to writing them was to not plan them and kind of just make it up as he goes along. And in some ways, like the origin of the Parker books is in itself sort of like almost a creative exercise or a creative game for him where he famously was like, I want to like really strip down my writing and strip down my prose and make it as stark as possible. <laughs> And then, and then, like he's got this formula that he never changes from. Like the titles are all. Uh, I think I mentioned this as well. That like it starts out. He does several books that are just like the blank, and then he does uh, four in a row that are like the blank blank score. And then after he comes back after a hiatus, then they're all 
compound words and the title of the next book uses the second part of the last book's compound words. So you get like flash <laughs> fire followed by fire break, followed by breakout, things like that. So sure. he, he is very playful, I think kind of in that way and where he, he will sort of like latch onto an idea like that and then just be like, and I'm just going to kind of like run with it and see what happens and be yeah. like very committed to it. Yeah. And I mean, it like it's sort of I think it works for him because it is so like like the simplicity is it's is an advantage I feel like because in like in the same way that like Parker's simplicity is an advantage where it's mm-hmm. like he is just a guy like you don't need to make it any more complex I mean like I feel like when like annoying people are like this is what movies should be <laughs> it's just it's it's just like it's just a guy and he's doing a thing mm-hmm. but I do feel like this is what movies should be to some extent <laughs> like it, it it really strips out a lot of the extraneous stuff mm-hmm and I do feel as well that like it's it speaks to like it's it's the the simplicity is like kind of part of the appeal in the same way that like ordinarily you wouldn't say like if you say like, oh, that series is really formulaic. That is normally like a big knock where you'd be saying like it's just the same story over and over. But like part of kind of the genius of it is that he has picked a formula that's sort of simple enough that he can just keep doing it in so many different ways. And the part like the Parker character is flexible enough that you get all these different books, which are all structured the exact same way and all ultimately like in the same genre with the same character, but for the most part are quite distinct from each other and manage to like continue to be entertaining, even when you read them kind of like one after another. Yeah. And I think that's because like, you get a diversity of settings, you get a diversity of characters, and then you can sort like the way that characters will sort of rotate in and out and be referenced back towards each other, I think is a fun little way to like introduce some continuity into it. Um, and then like formulaic, I think usually suggests predictable, and these mm-hmm. are very much not predictable stories. Yeah. So we are starting with the score here. He has selected an orangish kind of wash, a copper wash. You might even uh, go so far as to say to uh, reflect Copper Canyon, the site of uh, the proposed heist. And so the idea here, the titular score, yes. Um, The idea here is that this, this amateur Edgars has approached Parker and a few of his colleagues with the idea to rob this entire town, which is a pretty small town, um, but it's kind of a one horse town with a mine as the major employer, and then a couple of banks and jewelry stores. And he has devised this plan where we're going to rob the payroll for the mine. So two weeks pay for like most of the town and both of the banks and all of the jewelry stores all in one night. And to do it, he wants to assemble an extremely large crew, which Parker is, of course, extremely skeptical of. Um, and this leads to some great Parker moments. Like I, again, this opening sequence, like he, he tells the, the whole thing very well of watching like this guy try to follow Parker and then Parker, like kind of instantly realize it and then lose him and then like confirm that he's being followed by like reversing on him. Right. As the guy is like kind of trying to figure out where he's gone and you can see, I believe in the book he like describes this as the moment of confirmation that basically like he goes around a corner and then like too fast turns around and walks back the other way and sees the guy's like surprised face. And so he's like, obviously this guy's following me. And then again, lures him into an alley and uh, kills him kind of by accident. <laughs> but that this, this all sets up 
a sequence that I really like, which is where like he goes to meet the other guys to talk about the job. And the first thing he says is the deal's off. And the whole exchange that he has with Edgar is like trying to explain why it's a bad idea, I feel is like really quintessential Parker. And like the dialogue is very, uh, very snappy, very appealing. Yeah, I mean, it. I feel like part of what is I like about it is that it's snappy without sort of trying to be funny. Yeah, like like um, the thing that I really think of uh, as kind of like capturing what I like about the dialogue the whole way is this exchange where he's with Paulus, one of the other thieves, and Edgar's, um, and Paulus tells Edgar's that the guy who was following Parker is dead. Uh, and Edgar says, Dad, you killed him? Jesus, I had no idea something like this would happen. And Parker just says, I know, see you, Paulus. <laughs> and it's like, that sums it all up. Is that like, you're the kind of guy who doesn't realize that when you put a tail on a professional criminal, there's like a risk that they're going to end up dead. And and for that reason, I'm out. Yeah. To quote I mean, uh, many greats. <laughs> sure. Parker is kind of the king of, and for that reason, I'm out. <laughs> Um, yeah, but I mean, like, it, it is interesting also, it, it weirdly doesn't really factor into the score at all, uh, except, like, I guess towards the end, but both of these books are sort of based around the idea of, like, we shouldn't do this job because we are, like, drive, we are, like, going into a box, mm-hmm. and we, and, like, there's only one escape. Right, yes, and in this one, like, in the score, the appeal of it to Parker is, like, it could work, and if it did work... It would be like the greatest thrill of my life. Swag. <laughs> yeah. Um, whereas with Slayground, it's like I obviously should not do this, but I'm in such a dire circumstance that I have no other choice except to go in. Yeah. And the thrill of it is like, all right, I'm in now. How am I going to get out? Yeah. I, I, I Slayground especially Slayground is really where is you're like so good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I like it a lot, but like I feel like it's especially one where it's like he is. Clearly, I mean, I don't even know if I'm talking about Donald Westlake or about Parker, but like, he is so pleased with himself at that, for like devising this situation and yes. like devising his answer to it. Yeah, I do. I do think you are talking more so about Westlake there, certainly. But I feel like Parker too. Like Parker is like, I feel like he does have this weird pride. And oh I mean, yeah, like, definitely he does. That's why he does the score job that like. He will sort of, even though we sort of talked about him being this consummate professional and mm-hmm. sort of he knows what the rules are and he follows them, he is willing to bend if you sort of move enough levers, which are, yes. I guess, primarily like money and like how cool it would be to pull it off. <laughs> yeah, it is um, like I would say kind of the the two conceits that are most frequently recurring in Parker books is either there is a job that's central and the story is about the execution of that job. And it frequently is a case of like, there's something that makes Parker think I shouldn't do this, but he is kind of like coaxed into it anyways. And the story is basically about how he overcomes the, the things that stuck out to him as being reasons that he shouldn't have done it. Or the job takes place at the very beginning and then something goes wrong. And the book is about how he has to like clean up the mess that has been created within like the first couple of chapters more so than about the job itself and slate, like the score and slate ground both kind of typify that on either side where yeah. obviously the score is about this job that excites him despite all of its shortcomings and slate ground is about like, we, we barely even see the job it's over in like the first few pages 
and it's much more so about like how is he going to get out of the aftermath alive yeah and i mean i really like that about slate ground the way that it sort of like throws you into the action in that way mm-hmm. and i mean we don't even get like i feel like usually you would expect like a substantial amount of narration like giving the full backstory i guess do we get a little backstory of the job in uh, slate ground yeah not really other like it's an armored car job that he does with Grofield and this somewhat anonymous driver who is mostly anonymous because uh he dies in the first chapter right but yeah it's it's just like it's it's a job that should have been very simple and straightforward and is kind of typical of the sorts of jobs that like are Parker's bread and butter which is like they, they literally just, like, put a mine in the middle of the road, blow up an armored car, take everything in the back. And the only reason anything goes wrong is that the driver is antsy on, like, bad winter roads and crashes the car basically for no reason. Yeah, definitely for no reason. It's also, I will say, not to go cinema sins on it, but it is mm-hmm. crazy that, like, the whole setting of Slayground is about, like, it's snowing, but then, like, no one ever, like follows any footprints or like tracks anyone by way of there being snow on the ground yes i believe uh, again in the book it's like he he considers that at one point but he ends up going like all over the park and so at the end of the day it's like i have left tracks everywhere right like, it does show where i've gone but i've gone like all over the place so it doesn't matter if they follow sure, the tracks sure, they're sure. just going to be like walking around in circles from building to building right sure but the score what but the uh, score? Um, the yeah, score. it is. It is a tricky undertaking for a comic that clocks in at about 135 pages to have this like cast of thousands, even though some of them have been introduced previously. So we get Grofield and Vicha, both of whom are returning. Are they? Yes, Grofield is of course in the outfit, and I think Vicha is as well. They they both are. What's what's their deal? Grofield is the actor who uh, helps Parker out. So Grofield in the books isn't actually right. in uh, the outfit, but uh, but Cook ports him in basically to make sure that some of the faces in the score are more recognizable. So Grofield is the one who helps Parker do his job at um, uh, not Club Cockatoo, whatever the places that he hits as like one of his things um grofield and handy mckay are the two guys who help him do that and then vicha i believe is one of the two guys in the like suit jacket swap job right yes sure and then i mean you know i'd say about like it's probably about 50 50 between who like gets to have a character and who doesn't mostly <laughs> yes um it's it's like the little things like the ongoing debate between the two safe crackers about whether or not nitroglycerin is like the right way to crack a safe or like the pure way is is kind of what's sprinkled in there to to kind of spice things up but it's certainly primarily focused on parker of course Grofield is sort of one of the main guys for uh, for the book three that details kind of the, the events of the night itself. Yeah. And then Edgar's gets to be kind of part of it because he's the ultimately the antagonist. And other than that, yeah, it's like, it's pretty sparse. I will say in lieu of personalities, uh, Cook has elected to give uh, a bunch of different comics creators cameos as members of <laughs> the, the crew. 
So we have uh, the the canonical guys are Paulus, Grofield, Vicha. I need to flick ahead and remind myself of some of these guys' names because there's so many of them. There's I know like Phillips. Yeah. The old so guy. there's Wiss, um, Palm, who is based on Jimmy Palmiotti and is a new character. Elkins. Canon. Chambers, canon, but modeled after Frank Thierry, uh, again, a comic creator. Cho, who is Michael Cho, known Toronto scene cartoonist and uh, one once upon a time magazine colleague of Cook's. Salsa, who is canonical. Uh, and then Pop Phillips, who is also canonical, but is modeled after Jim Steranko, who is one of the like Marvel 60s legend type guys. And then, of course, Edgar's is the 12th man. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, one of the things I do like about the, and I think about Parker in general, is that even though, you know, some of it is based around, obviously, like something has to go wrong in the job, right? Mm -hmm. But I feel like it's so much more about, like, basically, Parker has to be really smart and good (laughs) and sort of, like, respond to this threat Mm -hmm. more than it is about, like, that like everything screwed up because like normally in a heist movie it's like we pull the heist and then like something screws up and then like we have to like shoot our way out or there's like a car chase something like that and like i feel like that's usually the least interesting part Mm -hmm. of the book because it's like oh it's no longer about having like a defined problem and needing to find a creative solution it's just like everything has sort of gone to hell and Mm -hmm. we need to just get out yeah i do think like the the I don't think any of the Parker books do this, but my number one favorite trope in heist movies is to have the thing that goes wrong be that whatever it is that they're stealing is like way more valuable than they thought it was. And so nothing like goes wrong, but then like the stakes get ratcheted up so high and the like the squad kind of turns on each other. Like I think of Triple Frontier as like kind of a recent example of that that does it in kind of the most literal way where it's just like there's so much more money than they thought it was that suddenly because they want to take it all, the logistics of moving it are like what kind of ends up being the problem. And the like debate within the crew itself of like, do we need to take all of this with us? Like we should just stick to the plan and the the money being what sinks them, right? Yeah, and the uh, another similar one is Twenty One Bridges, where with what? Oh, I just, just I'm always amused to remember the trailer where the cop is like, "What island? Manhattan." Uh, mm. But like the the plot of Twenty One Bridges is like these two sort of like pretty small time thieves go in to steal what they think is 30 kilos of cocaine and then when they get to the place they find 300 kilos classic just like you know yeah like you were saying the way that the scale sort of changes and like how everything has to like respond to that Mm -hmm. is very fun big fan of that but yeah in like in the score nothing goes wrong per se until like it's done already Uh, which is like kind of the the point of edgar's whole plan is like I don't want to mess up the heist. Like the whole point is to like screw everyone in this town over with a successful heist. I just also want to blow everything up at the end. Yeah. He's like just crazy, I guess, ultimately. Yeah. He, which it's funny, like to read cook talking about how, like I wanted to seed that with like the, the crazy little like model town that he builds at the beginning sure. to show his kind of like, 
he's got this sort of like unhealthy obsession with the town. Yeah. What if he like smashed it with his hands? <laughs> yeah. But I do feel like the score he does uh, in the, the montage where it shows him like kind of finally breaking, like step on a bunch of the buildings. That's good. I'm not sure if it's like supposed to be symbolic or literal. <laughs> Um, but like the, the score I think kind of typifies what is a kind of recurring trope or theme of the Parker books, which is that there's nothing wrong with the job as like designed by Parker. It's always a problem with the people involved in the Mm -hmm. job and the whole like kind of thing being like the appeal of his character being that like, he's the guy who always does what he says he's going to do and can always be depended upon. But the whole issue is that like, there's so few other people out there who can really be depended upon. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I mean, what what else do we want to talk about this one? I mean, I I like uh, I like the gold wash. Yeah, like I said, I think evocative of uh, of Copper Canyon, and it does it gives the whole thing kind of like a like sundown feel, which is duly appropriate given the like whole like kind of nighttime raid. It feels like the entire lead up. It's like approaching twilight. And then when they do the actual job, there's just like so much of it that's done in like black shadow and, yeah. uh, and, and darkness, which I think is a cool effect. Yeah. And like in the, in the aftermath as well, when they're sort of like in the sort of Canyon area mm-hmm. and like, he's talking to the girl. There's yeah. A lot that, of like, that sequence is really cool. Played mostly in black. And then you again have the case where like on the cover of the first one, how like the light, it, like the light turns someone white, mm-hmm. <laughs> which yeah, I think is a funny little you've trick. Got the, the shining headlights. I do think. Speaking of covers, the cover of the score I think is my favorite of the four covers, which just has like all the twelve men in silhouette with their huge guns and uh, and the truck behind them. Yeah, again, like I hate to keep harping on, but it's like this <laughs> would just be a really cool movie. It, there's and, like, like certainly a lot of great visuals. And just, like, the way that it has, like, these little scenes that don't ultimately mean that much, mm-hmm. but are just, like, sort of fun on their own, like, when they're driving the truck down, like, the canyon. Yeah, I do like that, like, uh, like, setting up, you know, how treacherous that road is, which ultimately becomes the downfall of Paulus rolling his car off of the, the cliff accidentally, um, which, like, thematically, what do I think that that symbolizes? <laughs> I, I don't know if it's, like the failure to prepare or if he just doesn't like, I guess, I guess it encapsulates that he doesn't have the same mental fortitude as Parker and some of the other guys who have already made that drive. And like, it was kind of harrowing and dangerous, but like they did it because it needed to get done. Whereas the whole reason Paulus is on that road is because he doesn't have the mental fortitude to kind of do what needs to be done in that instance. And so he dies like trying to navigate that same path. Yeah. And I mean like, that's so much of what Parker is, is like, if if the if the crew was ten Parkers, then mm-hmm. the stories <laughs> would no just issue. all be yeah. The stories <laughs> would just be all about like him totally poning people. But it it is usually all about how like people can't really measure up to Parker mm-hmm. or like you know that that sort of idealized version of what the job is supposed to be. Yeah, I do feel like one of the big showcases that Cook gets to do in this one is sort of like his um his like character acting as it were because there's so many people and like keeping them all visually distinct at times is like a little difficult. And I think like the overlap as far as having those scenes that are like ultimately inconsequential to a certain extent, but fun to have. And like just showing off kind of his, his cartooning ability as far as like the face acting and the character 
uh, interactions is the scene where he goes to like the hobby shop to buy the machine guns from sure. this like crazy old man. Yeah, your your guy. This is the yes, character the guy you that, would play. that I would play. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do do a great uh, deranged old man. <laughs> I, I sadly lack the eye control to do the bit where he lowers the sunglasses and the two eyes are pointing off in different directions, <laughs> which <laughs> is. It's certainly a thing uh, that happens. I also like that Parker like dupes him, quote unquote, by just like looking in the box that he's not supposed to look in and being like, oh, so you have three. <laughs> I One of my favorites is when he like he like cusses out Parker mm-hmm. and then after he agrees to buy the guns, he goes, you're all right, Parker. You don't mean all those things you say about me. <laughs> like a very you lie yeah (laughs) yes uh and of course parker just like leaving and uh, leaving him alone in the office to shout you rotten son of a bitch scum vomit cesspool parker (laughs) (laughs) great character scofe we love him (laughs) that is just a very you character in the way that like the like so cocksure, but then like so deeply like insecure. <laughs> like, Please come back, Parker. Uh, yes, we we love to see it. Of course, one of the other complications uh, introduced by Edgar's is his dame Jean, his best girl. Sure, a character whose sole purpose is to like <laughs> give give Parker his like ironic ending. I guess yeah, be be bedded by Parker at the end of yeah. the. I almost said the movie. Um, he he literally says, as I mentioned in the last episode, he does one long form interview for each of these, except Slayground. It seems I wasn't able to find one for Slayground, but um, but in the one that he did for the outfit, he literally says, like, I originally didn't have her in it. I just had Mary Deegan, who is um, the the girl that is seduced by Grofield and ends up leaving with them. But then he like got to the end and was like, wait, what's the ending if she's not in it? Right. <laughs> so just like they all drive away. That's kind of boring. So then he like went back and put her back in. Yeah. And I think like that, it does sort of add an interesting dimension to part. I think maybe it is just like the kind of like stock female characters in like these books. But like Parker is so good at like seducing women. Uh-huh. Like he does it all the time. Yes. He is like... um Again, like I said, that this sort of like animalistic thing about him that like frequently is brought up in the books is the the whole like like women want him and men want to be him is like kind of the theme of a lot of sort of these like asides that Westlake will do in the book. So like, for example, in uh, The Hunter, like when he's walking across the bridge, he does this whole interlude basically where it's like, and this woman sees him out the window and like gets horny for him. But then she like gets scared of him. (laughs) It's like, that's basically like the effect that he has on all women is that they are simultaneously horny for him and scared of him. And he like will frequently do like these mini character studies of like, Oh, like this waitress serves him at the diner and she's very horny for him. But then she like, uh, he, he like says something like puts her down in some way and doesn't tip. And then two hours later she gets snippy with the like line cook because she's like still mad that Parker, you know, she's been implicitly rejected by Parker. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's 
a very much recurring thing that uh, persists even once we get Claire introduced later on as kind of his uh, his steady girl. Sure. I'm just scrolling through my list of tall actors. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I mean, like, there's a lot of great joke ones. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, Wiz Khalifa, he's 6'4". Uh-huh. Sure. I think that's all I've got for now. Oh, I mean, the evil one as is the case with almost any given character, <laughs> mm-hmm. John Krasinski. <laughs> oh, yeah, he's tall. Yeah. That would be so bad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Like, unspeakably bad. He played Jack Ryan. Yeah, did you watch he did. That? I have not watched that. Very confusing how much Jack Ryan and Jack Reacher media was all out at, like, the exact same time, which contributed to me not really engaging with any of it until Amazon's Reacher. Highly recommend. Good show. Yeah, there was, like, that 10-year period where it's, what, there's two Jack Ryan movies. With Chris Pine, and then the Jack Ryan. two Jack Reacher movies. I think it's just one Jack Ryan movie. There's there's Jack Ryan Shadow Recruit, of course, I think. Yeah. That's yeah. the Chris Pine. And that's and Chris Pine. That's he wasn't one. in a second uh, Jack Ryan movie? No, there's two Jack Reachers. Jack Reacher and Jack Reacher never, never go, go back. Never go back, famously. Um, Joe Manganiello could play Great Parker. Sure. 6'5". I do, I, I do feel like you want someone a bit more in that vein. Yeah. And then there's the two... Or there's the, you know, there's the Amazon Jack Ryan and there's the Amazon Jack Reacher. Yeah. That's crazy that... that they made both of those, and also there's uh, without remorse slash the presumed oh, yeah. like Rainbow Six series that's going to come out of that. Right. What if Stephen Merchant was Reacher? I mean, <laughs> Parker. <laughs> Either, Either <one>. really. Yeah. <laughs> what if? Let's just get what him in there. If? What's that? That's um, incredible thoughts. Ah, what if a garbage man was actually smart? Yeah, my famous Snapchat. Uh, I'm pretty sure I have that saved and might tweet it because it's my finest work of comedy ever. It's it's pretty good. Yeah, I'm just I'm just flipping through this interview on the score to see if there's anything uh, of note else that we want to talk about. As we've kind of alluded to, the job goes off without uh, a hitch. Really, oh well, there's a couple hitches, but they are all successfully diffused basically by Parker's uh, like pre-planning and foresight. Um, until Edgar starts blowing up the town. He dies uh, when the building, the wall of a building that he has just blown up collapses on him. <laughs> and then, yeah, the I, the ending is like fairly unique, or I guess kind of like the denouement is fairly unique insofar as like, and I think if there's anything left on the table, both by Westlake and Darwin Cook, it's in this section where they go back to the hideout and they have to all hide out together and it's just kind of like a pressure cooker and like it, it's a really cool setting that you could almost do its own whole book in that would be like a psychological thriller where it's like no one is here per se because they have to be but any one person leaving kind of screws everybody else and everybody wants to leave but everyone also kind of like knows the risks if you leave too soon and and so I think like the intensity of like being stuck in this like abandoned mining like shack which is where they all are for like two weeks while helicopters that are searching you like fly for you fly around overhead is like a really great setting but i think apart from the conversation that parker has with mary which is a very good 
part, maybe my favorite part of the book, actually, as far as kind of like the the adaptation. You don't get too much of that until Paulus kind of has his big uh, his big attempt to break. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like that part is almost evidence of the fact that this is more than just like a good sort of hard-boiled or action kind of series, is that mm-hmm. you can have those moments, like the character moments, like the conversation between Parker and Mary, you said her name was? Mm-hmm. Like, stuff Mary like Deacon. that. And, and that you can sort of devote, like, you know, 20, 30 pages to this whole sort of, like you said, like, it's part psychological drama, part just drama, like, there, that you can have that and not have it feel, like, it's just as interesting as anything else. And the same with, like, how so many Parker stories are about, like, planning the job, like you were sort of talking about in the last episode, that it can be so much of that, and that's no less interesting than actually doing the job, mm-hmm. which I think is also like a mark of great movies in that genre too, is that you're not just waiting around for the job to happen. Yeah. Like I think that one of the like great parts of the score, which is only kind of alluded to in this um, is that like part one of, one of the things that like the whole crew talks about, I think it might be while they're like, it's either while they're preparing or while they're like waiting in the truck for midnight to like start the job they all talk about like whether or not they pay their taxes um, and which Parker alludes to this when he's kind of trying to convince Mary not to stay with Grofield. He says he's going to be in jail in five years. And one of the reasons that he cites is he doesn't pay his taxes. And this conversation that they all have about like whether or not they pay taxes and why is just like a very good, again, one of those procedural things where it's like you don't really you, you, a law-abiding citizen and uh, upstanding member of society, don't really think about, like, if I was a bank robber, would I or would I not pay taxes? But it's the kind of thing that, like, these books are so interested in of, like, how does a bank robber, like, avoid falling under the scrutiny of the IRS? Like, do they pay their taxes? If so, how? If not, how do they avoid, like, getting audited or getting, like, chased down by the irs for not paying their taxes yeah they talk about that in uh i think the firm the john grisham Mm. novel and film of the same name that like right like the way like most of the time the way you get got is like the irs will come after you and like they're like the most fearsome threat of all the capone of it all sure exactly famously nailed for not doing his taxes and i believe there is like a line on like the American tax declaration forms for declaring like income that is the proceeds of a crime <laughs> that is like borderline exclusively there because no one does it. So if you do have income, that's like the proceeds of a crime, they can be like, well, you didn't claim this. Right. Exactly. I mean, this it honestly, if I'm being totally honest, it sounds like a job for the accountant. It does. It does sound a little bit. Like I believe a job it is the, the job of the accountant. <laughs> uh, someone get him uh, a bunch of whiteboards and some dry erase markers. I say, <laughs> hilarious that like one of the like big montages of that movie is him like doing taxes on a whiteboard mm-hmm. and then being like, "I've got it." <laughs> I, uh, but I yes, watch we have. Movie again. Yeah, good movie. Um, I honestly, frankly. The forensic accounting scenes more exciting than the final confrontation of like physical violence. I don't know. That part's really good too. Indeed. Um, but yeah, so we get again, this conversation with, uh, with Parker and Mary that we've talked about quite extensively where 
is so much done in black and you can't see their faces for most of it, which I think does like a good job of taking this character who, you know, is pretty thinly drawn up to this point and laying out the ways in which it's like, I just, just giving like guess some, some meat on her bones and making it into more than like, she's not just like caught up in the excitement of this. She is like in some ways using Growfield more than he is using her and I think that having her and Parker both like cast in shadow like this and both kind of like facing the cold realities of kind of the situation as far as like Parker tries to kind of get at her by detailing like the horrible ways in which some of her friends probably have died as a result of the night's activities and throwing her in the same like kind of shadow lit, no expression, you know, I wanted to say light, but it's literally the absence of light. Whoa. I think like aligns her with Parker maybe more so than like any other character in the book where it's like, she does like underneath the like small town girl excitement chasing kind of like veneer. She has this sort of like inner darkness or at least like kind of inner pragmatism that is not like entirely dissimilar from Parker's. Yeah. Parker. I mean, I feel like Parker's quality is sort of like his earnestness in the sense that he isn't really a deceptive person per se. Mm-hmm. He just sort of says it like it is. And I feel like he is sort of his uncomplicatedness as a person sort of belies like his internality to some extent. Like he doesn't have like, he's not a talker. He doesn't have these vices that we talked about last episode. Like, that's sort of, again, it gets back to his simplicity is sort of, like, what makes him interesting. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's also kind of, like, a certain amount here, I think, of, like, lack of self-knowledge that's interesting, where, like, after he has this conversation with her, he becomes customarily horny, as he often does after mm-hmm. a job, but specifically thinks, like, I don't want someone like that. I want, like... A floozy, basically. <laughs> and so he ends up back with or headed towards Jean, uh, who was with Edgar's, because he's like, that's the kind of woman I need. But then when he gets there, he is like annoyed with her and and thinks like, where do I find a woman like Growfields? Yeah. Where it's like he, he both like does not want the like attachments uh, and like baggage of a relationship to like kind of tie him down and weigh him down. And yet he does like kind of feel this draw towards a kindred spirit or someone who at least has kind of like the, the competence to be like in his life without screwing things up for him. Right. And and the one other thing I did want to mention about those, that those scenes like in the, the mind shack is just like, I feel like the quiet really comes across, especially because they he renders like stars a lot which i feel like mm-hmm. is something you don't necessarily see a lot in a nighttime sort of setting yeah that like the the night of it all really comes across yeah. because you have and, like, like the how star far fields. they are from like civilization and yeah just like how how like alone they are together yeah. wow really makes you think yeah truly. not me but you <laughs> yeah <laughs> so anyways he uh he goes to see gene and uh and treats her mean as is his way the end <laughs> mean gene speaking of watch him and randy savage so yeah the score 
Good stuff. There is a French movie of this uh, that is called Mise à Sac, which I believe means things in the bag or what's in the bag. Sure. In uh, in English titled Pillaged! Exclamation <laughs> point. Sure. There is apparently a like bad rip on YouTube, which I did not watch because everyone, mostly the commentary is like, this movie seems amazing despite how terrible the YouTube rip is. Um, but I am very curious to see it. It's apparently quite good and quite a quite a faithful adaptation. Um, the interview that he did for the score was with the violent world of Parker.com uh, cool. <laughs> seeking to to speak a bit more to the um, the the Donald Westlake fans side of things as opposed to the comics side of things that he has done in the past. Um and so they are the the two guys interviewing him are pretty enthusiastic about uh, Misa Sack. Sure, there is also the unrelated movie, The Score, mm-hmm. with Robert De Niro and Edward Norton and Marlon Brando. That is, of course, the movie where Marlon Brando kept calling Frank Oz Miss Piggy. <laughs> <laughs> And was like allegedly ghost directed by De Niro because Brando like refused to like act for Frank Oz. <laughs> uh, good stuff. Yes, this book, also known as Kill Town, I feel the score is a better title, but uh, but Kill, Kill Town, Town does is more have of a, a Slayground title. Yeah, certainly. Which does bring us to Slayground. They. He, he said originally that what he was planning to do, Cook This Is, um, after the score, was to do uh, a version of Slayground that was going to be like a short story similar to what he did with The Seventh, which I assume you got to uh, at long last in this this chunk. Yes, it's in my copy it's of It's in Slayground. Slayground, I think, right? Yeah. yeah. Um, So he was planning to do something like that where it was going to be like quite, quite short. I think he says like 20 pages or less. Let's see. Oh, he says, um, so Scott Denbeer wanted him to do two 48 pagers, one which is Slayground. And then um, speaking of, again, kind of like the Westlake sense of playfulness, one of the conceits of Slayground is that the first chapter is the same in two of his books and the other book is a Grofield story that follows like what happens to Grofield after the car crash which actually was published first so you get this um this Grofield book that I believe is called the Blackbird yes it was so you get the Blackbird and then two years later you get Slayground which has the same first chapter identical uh and then follows Parker instead of Grofield sure so he was going to do two 48 pagers one which was Slayground and one which was Grofield and then do the handle which brings back Grofield Salsa and I think one other person from uh from the score for this like casino island robbery job um that was like inspired by James Bond uh which is like I would say it's on the lower half of of my preferred parker books but it is a fun it's it's definitely different from like a lot of the other ones but so that was the one that he was kind of targeting as the next long one i'm not really sure why they ended up going in a different direction but the handle never materialized and instead in 2013 as promised at the end of (laughs) of uh, the score 
uh, Parker returns for Slayground. Three minutes. Slayground. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I mean, as we've alluded to previously, what a title. What a title. Now, it is a little strange because, of course, it is a take on Playground, but he doesn't go to a playground. <laughs> he goes I mean, to a fair. come on. What do you want to call it? Slayer? (laughs) (laughs) County Slayer? (laughs) (laughs) That's pretty good. (laughs) Uh, So as we alluded to previously, Parker uh, and Grofield do a job that goes off uh, pretty smoothly until their driver, who has the jitters, crashes the car. That's a great sequence also. Um, It's like a two-page spread where... He's got like the last panel before you do the page turn is the car like skidding out on the snow. And then he does two pages of these kind of like oblong panels that are like you start with just a view of the street. And then each panel after that basically like shows the car like flying and like rolling end over end and then like sliding across the ground before it comes to a stop. And does this have like is this like a gray wash or is it just not? I think some of it th- has to be right. E- yeah, I, I would have said it was a bit more of a blue and it's just like kind of more of a true blue than the hunter, which is like almost kind of like borders on greenish. I feel like my colors are different than your colors. Maybe. Um, I Although I, I, I was like thinking um, again in this interview for the score there are some like kind of sample panels and those are all in a blue wash which i was like kind of looking at in confusion did this come out at some point with a blue wash because mine is extremely orange in both like i i first looked at the um original hardcover that i had and then looked through the martini edition just to kind of browse later on and it was orange in both of those yeah i have sent you an image link to just like a swatch from mine which i'm arguing yeah that is like pretty pretty greeny gray i mean it is like it is the same color i just feel like when i look at it kind of macro the effect is more sort of bluish it's very wintry very icy so maybe that's the best way to describe it as an ice wash sure the big yeah i mean like i really like the setting sort of like we alluded to it is like there's snow on the ground it is a very sort of stark, you know, it, it does feel like a buffalo. Like, what? Oh, I see. Stark. Yes. Great. <laughs> I made a face being like like the guy. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, like, certainly something we are sort of familiar with, those sort of, like, dreary winters. Mm-hmm. Yep. The it regional, very... uh, like, <laughs> kind of, like, half-rate amusement park. Yes. Um, I was kind of trying to think, this, this gives me real, like, Santa's Village vibes, I would say. Unlike you, I never attended Santa's You've village. You've never been to Santa's Village? Okay. Do your Santa's Village chunk. I don't have a Santa's Village chunk. <laughs> Santa's Village is uh, a half-rate amusement park in Bracebridge, Ontario. As indicated by the name, it has a Christmas theme, despite being open mostly in the summer. <laughs> and it just it just reminds me of this place insofar as like there are rides, there are attractions, but all of it especially in the off-season, is presented kind of deliberately, I think, here by both uh, Cook and Westlake as, like, quite cheap and, like, kind of depressing. <laughs> yes, absolutely. I mean, like, the it has an Alcatraz house of wax, which is just crazy. Yes. <laughs> yeah, 
yes, the the fun island is broken down into six different kind of regions, which are I know there's there's so there's Treasure Island, Alcatraz Island, Pleasure Island, which I was a little confused about what that was supposed to be. There's a, a we already referenced it, Manhattan Island, baby. <laughs> Manhattan. Um, which island? Treasure Island. <laughs> What if it was did called I say Unis Treasure Land? Island already? Yes, you did. Now three times. Oh. Uh, okay, here we go. Hawaii Island. So I'm I'm a little confused about the distinction between Hawaii Island and, and Pleasure Tiki. Island. Oh yeah, sure. I mean, and then there Voodoo are... Island, Desert Island, and Island Earth, which is a good <laughs> good bit to have <laughs> Island Earth. But did you say it's the space space world? That's Island Earth. Oh, isn't that kind of ironic that it's island earth but, but it's island about outer earth space. Is the space one yeah i think that the idea of it is like if you think about it earth is sort of just a little island in this vast sea of stars that is our galaxy slash universe hmm. interesting it is of course very much like a kind of cut rate disney world right down to declaring itself the happiest place in the world cook goes completely ham designing the like brochure for like the park map which is included in entirety as like a three-page like gatefold like you open it up out of the book to get like the full the full map of the park which it's very funny because like oh like the guy (laughs) (laughs) it is it's very funny because like this is the kind of thing that would be very helpful to have in the books which they don't have. So instead, Westlake just spends like a lot of time describing like the park and the layout of it. Whereas in this, like, I mean, TBF, he does spend, I guess, four pages all, all told um, that if I guess you were, if you were focused exclusively on kind of economy, you could do it in less, but he gets around it by literally just giving you a map of the park. (laughs) And yet, because, so much of it takes place like we just see Parker walking around. I feel like you don't always necessarily get a sense of like where in the park he is. Yeah. But I mean, like, it doesn't really matter that much. Maybe if it were a movie, he would want a little more of that like sense of geography. But mm-hmm. I didn't really have a problem with it. I mean, did, did you did you sort of elucidate what the plot of these books? this book is uh no i didn't so he they crash the car uh parker escapes with the boodle uh because Grofield is unconscious and laufman the driver is dead which is what like seventy five thousand dollars uh i think it's 80 but yeah something like that um no you're right seventy three thousand in cash so he hears sirens coming and escapes to the only place he can see which is fun island closed down for the winter but as he hops the fence (laughs) yes everyone just Head on down to penisland.net. But as he hops the fence and goes in, he is seen by a pair of corrupt cops and their outfit handlers who quickly deduce what they have just witnessed based on uh, the police reports and, uh, you know, the scene of the crash and what they witnessed with Parker going over the fence. Uh, And so they conspire to throw the legit cops off the trail while they convene a, a group of outfit boys to go in Sorry, that's just me folding the map back up. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say. While they convene a group of outfit boys to go in and uh, claim the boodle for themselves, Parker, having gotten inside, uh, quickly realizes that he has been seen and made and he will soon be uh, 
under siege. And so he hides his uh, his treasure trove, gathers up everything useful he can find, and turns uh, the fun house into a house of horrors, preparing various different booby traps uh, throughout all of the different attractions uh, in the park. So what is this book? <laughs> This book is uh, a lot of like long descriptions of him going from like building to building throughout the park, laying the traps, like describing like what he does to set up the traps. And then it's it's pre- like it's almost all in here. It's like the first group comes in and he kills them all with his like cunningly laid traps, but falls in the water uh, as a result. And so he has to kind of like retreat to regroup because he's got hypothermia. But he kills what is, I'm pretty sure in the book, it's just kind of like a mentor-mentee type relationship. But in this, it's recast as father and son of, like, the local top outfit guy who then, like, uh, you know, rustles up a proper posse to go in and uh, and kill him. And so he has to just kind of force his way out and leave the loot behind. Um, that's pretty much exactly what happens <laughs> in the book. But again, it's a, like it's a lot of descriptions of him, like, just leading people um, from place to place laying his traps, springing his traps, describing like how he sets the traps up and then like how he convinces people to spring them, which like I said, like it's fun to read, but it really does lend itself very well to this, like, you know, the visual medium. I especially like when he uh, like electrifies the pond with the like live wire and the wrench, something that is very economically depicted in two pages here, as opposed to like a few paragraphs describing (laughs) what he's doing in the books right and yeah i feel like you know because the story is kind of thin i feel like he does Mm -hmm. like try and take as much sort of artistic license as possible like yeah i'm like 85 percent sure that there's just that one reference to scampi in (laughs) in this dialogue scene which he renders as like on one side it's this like father and son pair of mobsters talking and mm-hmm. on one side is the side, and then on the other side, you don't see the father. You just see, like, shrimp being fried. <laughs> um, it is, like, famously one of the, like, things about this guy that he's very proud of his cooking uh, and, like, of being kind of like an amateur gourmet, but that his cooking is just kind of, like, okay. <laughs> but all of his, like, top lieutenants act like he's the greatest cook ever and are, like, so enthusiastic about his cooking and, like, he makes he thinks it's like a really big deal to like be invited to come and have dinner at his house and he like cooks for his lieutenants and they're all like it's so great but then their actual opinion is just like it's fine <laughs> like he's not bad sure that's good but yes yeah, so so he kills uh Benito Lozini and then subsequently incurs the wrath of Pops Lozini who comes in to the park with a big crew and Parker decides he just needs to get out with his skin, which he ultimately does by duping the two corrupt cops. um, One of whom is substantially less enthusiastic about being part of this whole operation than the other. So he knocks out the gung ho one and wraps his face in the strips of his shirt to pose as him with a head injury. (laughs) They are subsequently able to get Pops Lozini to drive him to the gate to let him out until he asks to see the injury. Parker is outed and ends up shooting his way out the last uh, few steps, at which point he is able to get in a car and uh, make off with his life, if not with his loot. Precisely. I mean, I will say there's one part where, like, when, when he first sort of, like, unveils his his house of horrors Mm 
mm-hmm. he like turns the light on to the the voodoo funhouse. Yeah. Uh, and then and like the lights turn on, and there there's once is like, what kind of madman could do this? And it's like <laughs> he just turned on the lights. <laughs> Yes. Um, I mean, you can get the sense that it would be kind of. Uh, it would be unnerving, certainly. But it's at like it's not like in this like abandoned part. No, he he did not. But but yeah, again, a very good bit where he has like sprayed paint on all these funhouse mirrors. Really the guy walks in, and uh, and Parker just shoots whichever image does not have spray paint on its chest. A good bit. It's all it's all good bits. I really, really like. It's um, just like these are here's like ten good bits. Yeah, uh, big big like Steranko energy in the funhouse too, where like the like whole like spinning wheel thing to like disorient them it is like very Steranko inspired feeling to me. Again, the bit where he lures one of them into the or I think a couple of them into the electrified pool is extremely good. Um, a lot of like. I, I, I guess it gives me like New Frontier vibes almost that one because you see like the big buccaneer sign lit up and you've got like the yo ho ho yo ho and then like <laughs> screams from below where the like buccaneer sign is replaced with like a huge flash and then you get the reverse shot of Parker with his face illuminated by the electricity with the sound effect which then suddenly stops and you have the same shot but he's now in complete darkness. <laughs> yeah, I mean just so effective like so so good yeah that sort of triptych like so it's sort of like one thing is either like staying stable or staying consistent and the other thing is changing is a very Mm -hmm. like cookie and thing like in uh the hunter when like that whole scene of like him coming into town has a lot of those where it's like Mm -hmm. it's like a triple it's like a triptych panel it's like he's walking he's walking he's walking and then it's like Someone notices him, they're shocked, and then they're like looking back at him as he passes by or whatever. Yeah. Yes, lots uh, lots of those. Um yeah, so you can definitely like see I think why he thought this would be a good candidate to boil down to a more abbreviated version. This is by far, I think, the shortest of the four that we've covered. I believe it clocks yeah. in at under a hundred pages. It does, including the seventh. Yeah. And and you could probably like trim further off of that so yeah it it again like you you can see why he had the impulse of like this would be pretty easy to get down to 48 pages and i haven't been able to find any information about why he ultimately went uh, a different direction yeah i i mean like i guess it because the other one would be like parker's not really in it right yeah that's right and and the whole idea like those weren't going to be their own like hardcover books necessarily it was like going to be like two kind of yeah. like one shot specials yeah and then and then the handle was going to be the next sort of full book was the was the idea the plan initially was that he i think i mentioned this in the last one they had the license for eight years so he had kind of an eight-year window in which he was able to do kind of whatever he wanted now westlake dies in 2008 and we get the hunter in 2009 the outfit in 2010, the score in 2011, and then Slayground in 2013. So he still had a few years kind of on the on the docket here. Yeah, well, I don't know if you have this, but at the end of my copy of like that has, so it's like Slayground and then it's the seventh. 
Mm-hmm. And then afterwards, there's the classic Parker will return in 2015. In 2015. And obviously yeah. that never happens. Yes, it did not happen. Um, and that would have been like, again, I think they had the license until 2016. So there, it sounds like there were a lot of things kind of being planned um, for, for follow-ups to Slayground. The big one, as mentioned, being Butcher's Moon, which as like in the as far as the books go, it's like a double issue. Basically it's twice as long as pretty much every other Parker book. And it's like quite a big thing. And it sounds like they had some other ideas for stuff that they might want to do as well around that time. Teased for 2015 in 2015 uh, at like a convention cook announced and then Dunbeer later, later like confirmed to the media that it wasn't going to come out in 2015 the whatever the next Parker thing was. They didn't even say what it was, but he was like, no more Parker basically until 2016. And then of course, uh, in December 2015 is when he found out that he was sick uh, and he died midway through 2016. So I don't think they have ever shared, including in this like new martini edition of the second two books that just came out relatively recently. I haven't really seen anything as far as like process stuff for what he might have been working on or really like any indication of what sort of direction he was going in other than like Scott Dunbeer in particular frequently says like we had a lot of things that we were working on and like in particular Butcher's Moon was you know up there on on Cook's wish list and was the thing that he really wanted to do and you can also find lots of interviews with Cook where both when he does like these long form ones and people say like, what's the kind of long-term plan? He says, I want to do butcher's moon. And whenever anyone else asks him, like, what's, when are you going to be back with Parker? He's like, I want to do butcher's moon. So that seems to have been the main thing, but, um, but yeah, sadly his, uh, his untimely death meant that that never came to pass and whatever development he might have been doing for it has not been shared publicly that I've ever seen. <sighs> yeah. I mean, that's too bad because I mean, like, it's not like anyone else is going to be like, I'll take up the mantle of these like beautiful Parker books. <laughs> yeah. For this martini edition, Scott Dunbeer brought on Ed Brubaker and Sean Phillips to do like a bunch of contributions to it. So the art design for the whole volume is done by Sean Phillips, kind of in the vein of the last one and of the, the, the other books. Um, Ed Brubaker like writes a few different pieces to contribute. And then they also contributed this story that was new for the volume, which is a a Grofield original story by Brubaker and Phillips called tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow, which is very uh, kind of moving and uh, elegiac. It's about Grofield in the like period. It's, it's funny. Brubaker talks about like, he's like, well, you know, there's this like huge 20 year window where no Parker books came out. So there's like a big kind of like gap there where you can kind of do whatever you want with Parker or Grofield. But that's like kind of funny because Parker is sort of like ageless. And even when it does come back, it's not like old man Parker is back. It's like, and of course, he's still 38, even though like 25 years have passed. But anyway, so it's this Grofield story that's set kind of in between. And it's sort of a take on a slayground type thing where Grofield finds himself back in the area of a job that he once did with Parker where they had to hide the the loot and leave it and they had never been able to find it and so that prompts him to reminisce about Parker who he believes is dead because he hasn't the last he heard was from Handy McKay that Parker was like involved in this accident on a job and he hadn't heard from him in some time and then he had not worked with him since so he thinks Parker is dead and he reminisces about you know 
what a what a unique Parker type of guy he was. <laughs> and then Arguably he finds the most Parker esque. Yeah, he he finds um, the boodle at last. But when he opens it up, all that is in it is a note that says, "Gee, I owe you your half. Pay you next time I see you." P. And it is written on the back of a receipt that is dated for um, several years after when Parker was thought to have died. So Grofield ends it on a, you know, he's a, he's a, out of money and being chased by the law. But today he's happy because Parker is alive and he's out there and he owes Grofield $40,000. <laughs> <laughs> um, so so all that to say, like, yeah, Brubaker and, and Phillips did kind of come in to not take up the mantle, but to contribute this thing, which is both a tribute to Cook and um, and Westlake, and originally had been asked to write a Parker story, and then Brubaker was like, no one has written a Parker story other than Donald Westlake, so right. I'm not going to, <laughs> right. but I'll do, I'll do this Grofield thing. And, and he talks at several points about projects that we will probably be looking at soon that are very much inspired by conversations that he had with cook while he was working on these books or like as a result he says in kind of some of the back matter here that like i've been having such a good time with sean phillips like working on this growfield story and thinking about parker that like now we're going to do our own sort of graphic novels that are not parker novels but you know very much inspired by the parker character right. and like the westlakean crime kind of genre which i believe are the reckless books that they have now put out a few of great on a slightly related note in terms of sort of like the elegiac tone i did the the dedication on the score did you notice see this that was, i did i did see this yes <laughs> this one's for every poor son of a bitch that's ever had to work with me which yes. is very in keeping with what we have sort of talked about and what we know about uh old cookie <laughs> cookie um That's yes my move. Uh, oh sorry yes um so there were a couple of things that i uh saw in in this martini edition pertinent to some of the other questions that we were kind of talking about last time as being maybe a little bit unanswered um just in terms of like a bit of the background so Scott Dunbeer, when talking about the origins of the projects, says that Ted Adams, who is one of the founders of IDW and at the time was also the publisher, is also a big Parker fan. So he had like recruited Scott Dunbeer away from DC. And when he left DC, Cook had told Dunbeer, like, we'll work together again on something. And so then like Dunbeer rang him up and was like, what do you want to do? And he was like, I want to do these Parker books. And so Scott Dunbeer went to Ted Adams and was like, I don't know if you've heard of these books, like the Parker novels. And Ted Adams was like, I love those. (laughs) (laughs) And apparently was like a huge fan and very excited about it. I also read an interview with Cook again as to sort of like the, like, why would they do this? Where he was talking about how at the time IDW was a bit newer in the publishing scene and didn't necessarily have a lot of titles that were like, making a splash. So for them having the opportunity to work with Darwin cook and having like that level of name recognition was kind of seen as like a huge get. So they were maybe even a bit more so open to having him do something that is kind of like, I, it may not initially seem to be kind of like the most commercially viable thing, but it gets us Darwin cook, which like gets attention on our fledgling publisher and like gets eyes on a ton of stuff that Darwin cook has nothing to do with and, and kind of helps us get, you know, off the ground here a little bit more. So 
that's kind of a bit of some of the rationale that might have been behind, you know, their their willingness to engage with the Parker books as a project. Sure. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, <laughs> that's just your classic, we're almost done the episode. I have like... <laughs> Time for my rant. 15% checked out, so you will go on a long monologue about your remaining notes. <laughs> there was something else about that that I... Oh, oh, yeah. So as far as the commercial viability... Cook is like actually quite stringent in interviews where he's like, it's actually a really good idea <laughs> because <laughs> because you get like the comics fans who are interested in me and the Donald Westlake fans who are like hungry for, you know, Parker content of any kind. So you're actually getting like two revenue streams instead of one. And uh, he, he basically he was like, I think it's actually an underutilized kind of model and like can you imagine you know x other superstar artist adapting like james bond or which has like since happened and been you know moderately successful so you know that he he was kind of bullish about i guess the viability of it i will say like i think i think he may be overestimated to a certain extent the willingness of fans of like non-comics media to like wade into licensed comics which i would say like things like Transformers and like Power Rangers, properties like that, which do a lot of licensed comics, you know, they subsist. They're, they're viable, but they're not like huge hits. So, but, but then again, I guess all he really wants is to be able to like make these comics and not have to do other stuff on top of it. So maybe he's right. Maybe. (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) It just, it does seem to me like, Okay, it makes sense from like a creator perspective where it's like you can make enough money from these to not have to like take a, a like a day job as uh, as Scott McCloud described Superman Adventures. But that is not like if I'm a publisher, I'm not like, oh, you make like enough to get by. Perfect. Like, where do I sign up? Right. <laughs> but uh, but again, you know, both of these also debuting in their release months uh, at number three on the trade charts not again like i guess consistent numbers with what they've done previously they both sell in the kind of mid to high 5000s but again not exactly gangbusters not measuring up to for example the batman earth 1 hardcover which sold 32913 units in its release month uh, above the score here that is certainly an outlier as uh, as these things go but still sure Yep. So consistently plugging away, he did win uh, some additional awards for these. Not, um, you know, not going totally ham, but taking best adaptation from another medium for both volumes and also winning the Eisner for best lettering uh, for this one, which is a couple of interesting lettering things. Like the, there's sort of this dream sequence at the start of book four where he's Mm -hmm. like hearing the things that, uh, what's his name is shouting to him. Yeah. Lozini is like like, over the loudspeaker. Yeah. And then also I think probably all the different logos that you have to have for like the different worlds. Yes. Uh, that's, that's certainly a big part of it. And I think I mentioned, um, on the new frontier episode, I want to say you had evoked whoever that guy is that did the posters in the sixties. Saul Bass. Yes. And he did like design. So this is the other kind of like weird slash funny thing. After the like success of these books, IDW announced that they were going to publish new editions of the novels and that each of those would have cover designs by Darwin Cook and then have like 12 like illustrations or Mm. or paintings uh, as part of them. 
so he had designed those those logos that we uh, talked about for all of the books. Now, only the hunter ever came out, um, which is the edition of it that I have, and the the paintings are lush and and beautiful. But um, he was working on the mourner, which is the fourth book in the sequence uh, when he died, and some of his initial kind of planning sketches are in the Martini edition, but that was as far as that ever got. And, and so they had to shelve that before too long. Speaking of uh, letterers of the Eisners, I've told you about Todd Klein, right? Uh, I don't recall the name offhand. Uh, Todd Klein is a well-known DC letterer. Some of he like he worked on Sandman is one of his big kind of claims to fame. Suicide Squad is one that I certainly uh, know him from. He did pretty long runs on like Detective Comics and Batman. Uh See what else would you know here? The Invisibles, uh, Earth X. He did Brew Baker's part of Brew Baker's Captain America run. Uh, 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 Wonder Woman for a while. He did the whole run of Fables, a bunch of the America's Best Comics stuff. Anyways, the reason I bring him up: Eisner Award winner for Best Letterer, nineteen ninety three to nineteen ninety five, and nineteen ninety seven to two thousand eight. <laughs> <laughs> so he has like one of the most ridiculous Eisner runs. <laughs> that that can be spoken of uh he has won 17 best lettering eisners including that absolutely insane streak from uh from 1997 or 19 what did i just say yeah 1997 to 2008 so that's what like six like 15 and 16 years or something yeah a a bill (laughs) russell-esque streak of of eisner awards for best lettering so anytime the best lettering thing comes up i just am like man crazy that there is like a goat letter he also has like if anyone is interested in (laughs) the the nitty-gritty of lettering uh he has a website called kleinletters.com that was very clearly made in like 2001 and has like not really been updated design wise since then because there's a picture of the new york city skyline on it no it's it's, the two towers (laughs) okay i will i will send it to you so you know what i mean but it's like i just like it's just done in like html sure yeah um uh, but he like keeps like a pretty relatively up-to-date blog um that he like you know he still makes <laughs> posts somewhat regularly uh most recent post july 15th 2022 today Whoa. um like he's he he blogs pretty actively he does like things like like lettering technique yeah, stuff like and like stuff yeah it, it's like it's pretty cool like if you have an interest in kind of like the nitty-gritty of like comics creation it's like a surprisingly cool resource and then like tons of like history of his career um and like you know thoughts about like logo design which he also has designed a lot of like pretty iconic logos it's it's just like kind of a funny thing for a guy who is you know i think into his 70s now to to just to have like this very active blog of which the primary subject is like comics lettering and logo design but it's a it's a cool it's a cool little website if uh, if anyone has interested in such things absolutely uh but i think that will have to do it for this week's episode i have we didn't even talk about the harveys <laughs> okay i don't I'll take actually a freaking know if you burger want any and onion rings. <laughs> oh hey extra pickles please 
Okay. <laughs> Thanks. Famous brand. Um, yep. I'll throw two more. This is obviously not a, a current uh, suggestion, but Tom Selleck. Sure. That's a great Parker. And then my uh, modern suggestion, oh, Dax Shepard, 6'3". Oh. <laughs> um, my, my serious suggestion is Michael Shannon. Okay. He, he's maybe a little old for yeah, it at maybe. this point. But, but how old is Parker supposed to be? Like 40? Parker, I believe he is identified as 38 specifically in one of the books. But yes, he is kind of eternally uh, like in the like 38 to 42 range. Sure. I mean, Michael Shannon's like 48, but he could probably, he can play Is 40. he really only 48? I feel yeah. like he he seems older to me for some reason. Probably because you last saw him in Knives Out where he's sort of playing a little He was playing older. pretty old. Yeah, he he is present. It's, it is also crazy to be like, ah, yes, Zor, um, General Zod. Sure, yeah. <laughs> amongst, amongst his, like, <laughs> credits. He has some crazy quote about General Zod. Or, like, about, like, superhero movies. I like the sound of it. Let me find this. Oh, uh... <laughs> they're sort of talking about... I guess, like, they're talking about Batman versus Superman. This is when Batman versus Superman came out. Mm-hmm. And then... <laughs> okay, here's the quote. When someone... So, in a, in a interview, someone asked him, like, who would win? And he says, I'm so utterly concerned with the outcome of that fight. So profoundly, utterly unconcerned. I can't even come up with a fake answer. So I guess I have to root for Superman because he killed me. So I would hope that he would continue his killing spree and become like a serial killer Superman. That's a new take on Superman. We'd all be in a heap of trouble if Superman was a serial killer. He could just wipe us all out. But then he'd be lonely. The interviewer responded, isn't he lonely already? To which Shannon expertly rejoined, well, we're all lonely. It is so funny to me when actors have like so much disdain for superhero <laughs> yeah. movies. It's like I don't know. I know some some comics fans get very sensitive about the actors like not being crazy about it, but I think it's so funny when they have to like do these interviews where it's like, who do you think would win in a fight of Batman versus <laughs> Superman? <laughs> what if Batman versus Superman? What if? Um, yeah, it's especially good. Like, I feel like, for example, like MCU fans are very like Elizabeth Olsen. She's so great. We love her. She seems like very enthusiastic about being Scarlet Witch. And then now like that Dr. Strange is done and her contract's over. She's like, I'm very happy to never do another superhero movie. And everyone's like, I thought she she wanted to do another one. I don't know. Maybe she, I, she, I saw some interview with her where she basically was like, I don't like being in those movies and I'm glad that I have <laughs> some more flexibility to pursue the kinds of projects that I'm interested in. I'm now. sure there are drawbacks to, to say the very least. Uh, I can only imagine. He's going to be in the flash, a movie that is almost certainly never coming out. Uh, yeah. I mean, we have already listed innumerable announced Warner brothers projects that will not come out, but Certainly, the Flash got further along than uh, than many others before. It seems to have reached the point where it almost definitely will not come out. Yeah, I mean, it's all what are they doing with Aquaman two? Also, uh, they are just like cutting Amber Heard out of it entirely. Boy, so I guess we're gonna get like <laughs> a like eighty five minute joint. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> It'll be a little shorter. Yeah, it's crazy. Also, that it's like 
the the Flash movie has been in development for so long that they reached the point where they were like, we're going to have to do Flashpoint because our universe is completely screwed and we need to reboot it. And then they were like, never mind. We don't have a universe anymore. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It is certainly a unique relic. I don't know. It'll it'll come out one day, right? Will it? I mean, it's got to be like it would, I guess, be too much of a it, like um, it's in post production already, right? It is Surely. scheduled to come out on June twenty third, twenty twenty three. Right. But so like, I feel like, yeah, they. I mean, I feel like they can't afford not to release it. Yeah. Where, like, even if, I, I don't know, maybe it gets pushed again or something. I feel like they're so far into it right now. And I'm sure also the, like, post-production process, they're just kind of like, we're going to keep working on it until someone tells us to stop. So it's probably, like, you know, pretty pretty far along at this point that I have a hard time imagining a scenario in which it never sees the light of day. Yeah, I mean, like, it's also, like, the only credited actors are, like, The Flash... Iris West, Henry Allen, played by Ron Livingston, and then like Michael Keaton, Michael Shannon, yep, Ben Affleck. Classic. Yeah, classic. Wow, Ben Affleck is going to be in it, huh? Tamura Morrison. Yeah, he's uh, famously Superman. I mean, uh, Aquaman's father. Yes, he is Thomas Arthur Curry. Curry Senior. Thomas Curry. News to me. Anyways. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, indeed. So we will be going uh, next week. I guess sort of back in time to uh, the before Watchmen comics, which a, is a whole can of yeah, worms. There's a that's going to be a fulsome episode between <laughs> the before Watchmen of it all, the discussion of the actual comics, and the Darwin Cook wrap up. But that is indeed the last of his um, his stuff that we will be talking about. Uh, he around this same time also did the art for uh, a book by one of the Hernandez brothers, but I can't recall which right now they of course do the love and rockets comics, which are like an indie underground sensation, like, you know, library of Congress type material in the, in the comics world. So that was a very celebrated or, or hotly anticipated collaboration, but the last of his kind of latter works that, uh, that we're not going to be discussing because he just did the art the Twilight Children. The Twilight Children, the yes. Gilbert is, is. Gilbert, that's what I thought, but I didn't want to commit to one and be wrong. So, yeah, that that's the last of his kind of latter works, which we won't be covering. And uh, we'll probably talk about some of his um, projects that were being worked on, but did not uh, get completed next time. And also, I mean, like, you know, there's the stuff he was working on. And then also, I know you can get this work anytime if you want to. I'm hands. not familiar with the reference. Um, it's just like I'm gonna beat you up. <laughs> it's like you I can, can get, get these work hands. done, right? Uh, I wish you would. <laughs> I've been <laughs> urging it for years. Thank you yeah. all for listening. You can follow us at Got the Runs Pod. You can email us. At, I've really fallen out of it again. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can email us at gottherunspod at gmail Listen to Bevy of Bevies. Listen, uh, there's a. I will say, there's a great episode of uh, Bevy of Bevies this week or last week or whenever it came out. Uh, so listen to that. Yeah, rate, review, subscribe. G- 
give us two, two stars. stars. Yes, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. Et Deuces to the world. <laughs> sure, I haven't busted that one out in a, a hot, hot minute. Hits. But until next time, my to wife to be <laughs> continued. I'm in the castle. Look at me. I have a chair. I've still never seen First Borat in its entirety. It's so good. I also saw, isn't, um... <laughs>